you know, if you were really, really passionate about art, and then you heard that like 30 to 40% of the world's art museums were on fire, you would be like, what is happening? (laughs) And why is this not front page news? Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving, living, and learning languages. Hello, listeners. My name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk, and I'm here to tell you about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. Sometimes here on the show, I answer listener questions about the best ways to learn languages and get our heads around this big adventure that we're on. Sometimes it, I have my co-host on the show, Lindsay, and today it's one of those episodes where I'm bringing you something truly special, an interview with an amazing person who has dedicated her life to languages and in particular to preserving languages that will otherwise fall asleep, as she puts it. So you've got a lot to look forward to. This episode is brought to you, of course, once again, with support from italki, the online platform where you can find if you can find a language teacher and book a private tutoring session that fits your budget and your schedule. If you've ever tried getting a language tutor, you'll know that that's not easy. But with italki, they've made it easy. They offer a huge variety of online teachers who set their own hours and rates so that you can connect with the right teacher for you. You can try it out today with $10 for free at fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki. This opportunity to learn a language online is fantastic because it eliminates worries of where to meet your tutor, what time is the class scheduled, is this class even going to run because are there going to be enough people, where am I going to park, what time does the bus run? None of that applies when you've got an online tutor. You find them, you connect with them today. You can just connect with them however you like. Skype, FaceTime, you could text, you could WhatsApp. It works beautifully on a mobile too. I really like in particular the videos that the teachers make where they tell you who they are and they introduce themselves. For my new for my hunt for a, you know, new Chinese tutor, it's been It's been so helpful. The only problem I've had is too much choice, too many amazing teachers to choose from. So if you also want the banquet of teaching opportunity and wonderful people to contact, go over to italki, fluentlanguage.co.uk slash italki is the web address where you will find the right teacher for you. Thank you so much to Italki for sponsoring the show. And listeners, if you listened, if you tuned in last week, if you caught up, you might already know that you can now support this show yourselves. Hey, be a sponsor over on Patreon. Anything you can afford is absolutely welcome. We'll give you access to a secret extra feed full of exclusive audio, photos, scribbles and news. We'll have an exclusive RSS feed set up where you can get early access to every episode except when I am recording them the day before, like I do now. We've got lots of behind-the-scenes interviews, little mini-episodes, and extended fluent show notes full of the deep and perhaps not-so-deep thoughts, extra links, and the ideas that don't always make it into an episode. I'm really excited to have the Patreon channel open for 
all of you who enjoy the Fluent Show and want to support what we bring you every week. So head over to patreon.com slash Fluent Show or have a look in your pod player or in the show notes. The link is right there for you. Now, let me tell you about my guest for today. My guest is Alexa Little. In the call, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about who she is. We're going straight into the interview, but let me tell you in advance that this is about the importance of a specific group of languages. And I'm not talking about like romance languages that have have a huge speaker base and a really, really high profile. But what about the languages that you've never heard of? What about the languages that have two speakers left, a mother and her daughter? That's the stories that we're going to hear today. I want to bring this into the framework of the International Year of Indigenous Languages, which is being run by UNESCO this year. And I also put in the show notes for you our recent episode that I recorded with Lindsay, where we really got went deep and we explained indigenous languages, what they are and why they matter. You're also going to hear a really good definition in the show today from Alexa. And you're going to hear about schools and school policies in Hawaii and how Hawaiian went from being a very widely spoken language to a language that really is in danger and came back. So there's a story there that is amazing. You're going to hear about the role that an outsider, so like you, you might not be somebody who has heritage from indigenous language. You can hear about the role that an outsider can play in language preservation without stepping on the toes of the people who know best. You're going to hear about 7,000 languages. That is the organization Alexa works for. And you're going to hear what they do, where you can find their apps and how you can even get involved because I know you might be curious. I know like me that when you hear about a new language, you want to know more about it. You might want to have a dabble. So there are free apps that Alexa's organization creates and they are free for you. And you're very, very welcome to take advantage of those as well. Now, we are talking about endangered languages and indigenous languages, and there is a difference. So in the interview, we're going to go into the difference as well. And what happened to make indigenous language speakers into very often endangered language speakers? I can only tell you again how important this topic is. I'm so happy to be introducing you to this and to be bringing you people like Alexa who are doing incredible, interesting work that we don't really hear about. So she told me on the show, it's her first ever podcast interview. And sometimes you, you know, you hear from people where really they've made it part of their job to do all of this PR and come out and tell people about what they do. That sometimes I'm so pleased here on the show to bring you the interesting behind the scenes work that people do. I, I first heard about Alexa only only eight or nine months ago. And I was so glad that she was able to make the time and come on the podcast to tell us about her work. So without any more hesitation, Let's cut to the interview and I hope you're going to enjoy this as much as I did. Hey Alexa, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to me today. I think it's going to be such an interesting one for all of our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited. It's the first time I've ever been on a podcast, so really, really excited to talk with you and talk about what we do. 
Oh, my God. We're going to make it worth it. Uh, <laughs> listeners, I'm going to read you Alexa's bio. And then Alexa will talk a little bit about how you got to where you are, how you got to work the job that you do. That is so worthy and so fascinating. And then really about what it is that you do in your organization, which is called 7000 Languages. So Alexa is the executive director of 7000 Languages, a nonprofit that creates free language learning software in partnership with indigenous communities so they can teach, learn and revive their endangered languages. A self-professed language geek, she has dabbled in Japanese, Hindi, Nepali, Spanish, Old English and Old Norse. Whoa! And has a BA linguistics from Yale University. So that's you, Alexa. Do you feel like, do you feel well summed up? I think so. Um, I mean, it's always hard to capture that love of language that I think all of us in this circle feel. Um, that's kind of where I've always been coming from and where I where I'm going <laughs> with my trajectory. So if there's one thing I could say about myself is that I'm a language lover and that all of the work I do is about connecting with people, learning languages, pursuing knowledge. Um I just I just really love experiencing what every new language has to offer. Did you grow up with a lot of languages around you? No, actually. Um, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania um, in a town called Pittsburgh. Um, it's a city of about 300,000 people. Um, but I grew up in the suburbs. So my first experience with language was actually as a kid, I was really obsessed with ancient Egypt. Um, and so I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And I was about five, and my parents got me this book that was like stencils. They were cardboard stencils um, of Egyptian hieroglyphs. There's basically like an alphabet that the ancient Egyptians used in addition to the hieroglyphs that stand for various words and symbols. And so this had the alphabet as little stencils that you could like marker in if you're a five-year-old. And so I used it so much that my parents actually laminated it and they cut it out again <laughs> because I was destroying the cardboard with my markers. Like my washable markers were actually like eating away at the stencils. So they were getting ruined because I was so fascinated by this idea um, of another way of communicating. <laughs> um, and then within a couple of years, I think I realized that in order to be any kind of archaeologist or Egyptologist, you had to like go into a tomb and there might be scorpions and dirt in there. And <laughs> it became a little bit less. I'm not sure what I imagined was going to happen, but I it, it was clearly not going to be a Hollywood set. And I realized that, you know, as someone who does not particularly enjoy camping, this might not be a good field for me. <laughs> um, yes. But I was, I was lucky because um, my school, despite being in Western Pennsylvania, offered Japanese as a language um, that we could study from middle school up through high school. So as I got older, I spent a lot of time um, learning Japanese. Um, I took it from, I believe, eighth grade all the way through my senior year. And then I took the advanced placement Japanese test. 
and then continued on into college. So a lot of my love of language, I think, comes from that early instinct to really want to study language and be interested in it. And then the really amazing experience that I had learning Japanese um, because it is typologically so different from English. Um, Japanese doesn't use pronouns very often. Um, it uses tense in a different way from English. Um, structurally, it's basically reversed from English. So the order that you would expect adjectives and verbs and, and other parts of speech to happen are completely different. Um, and so that was really fascinating to me that this completely different way of communicating with people had evolved. Um, mm -hmm. And I think always it's, for me, it's come from a drive to want to like make friends and understand people. I mean, obviously I knew that I wasn't going to make friends with the ancient Egyptians, although being five, maybe I did think that. A little bit. I was like, soon I'll travel back in time. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, I was just really excited that if I learned enough Japanese, like it would unlock an entire world that I'd be able to read stories that I wouldn't otherwise be able to read, that I'd be able to talk to people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to communicate with. And just now, you know, 10 years later, that's finally starting to be a reality for me as I'm working, you know, in my career. I've I've been at conferences and spoken with people who are working on endangered languages of Japan. And they're like, well, part of our team only speaks Japanese. And I'm like, good news. I've been working on it. <laughs> I, and I think we can make it work. So um, I think that's what, what has always driven me to want to study more and more languages and learn about different different aspects of language and culture. I think it's it, it's fascinating to hear how important we I think we hear this so often and it's so rare how when somebody's school or when, when when somehow the the school teaching of a language aligns with with who you are and and you know the the, the teaching style happens to suit you you as the language learner can be so inspired and so fired up and it can set you up for life. It's so rare because for every, for every one of, of us <laughs> really who, who loved languages in school, because I did too, even Latin, anything, anything, I just I took as much as I could get. For any one of us, I think there's 12 people out there who, who hated it and came out feeling so incapable. So it's such a, it's such a treasure when your school gets it right. It's really amazing. Yeah, I feel really fortunate mm. to have had that experience. And I feel really fortunate that I was one of the people whose learning styles aligned really well with the with the way that school is structured and the way that languages are taught in school. Because um, I know other there were other people in my classes, especially in middle school, who were equally devoted. But because the way the language was being taught didn't gel with them, they were really struggling. Um, and I remember even at the time being heartbroken for them because, you know, one of, one of my desk mates was working just as hard as I was and she just couldn't grasp the particle system of Japanese. And it totally wasn't her fault. It was just that the way it was being taught, it stuck in my brain and it wasn't sticking for her. And she was so 
frustrated and and didn't know what to do with herself, you know? So I do feel very lucky that I had the experience to learn Japanese in the first place because it's not a commonly taught language in American high schools. And then also to have had the opportunity to have such engaged teachers who are also teaching in a way that that was particularly useful for me. Mm, so then you took linguistics at, in America they say school, but here where I live we say university. You took linguistics at university. Did you specialize in any foreign language or was this a focus on English? So when I was getting ready for college, um, or university, um, I was looking into what is a career I can do that's going to allow me to interact with lots of different people from lots of different languages and cultures without having to specialize in some kind of secondary field. Because I was taught that, yes, I could study linguistics, but then I would only study the very, like, direct structures of language and language in the human mind, which to a certain extent is true, but there are other fields of linguistics that do very different kinds of research that I didn't know about at the time. Um, and I considered doing international relations because I was like, well, that's the closest thing to learning a bunch of different languages and then using it for some purpose that interacts with culture and making a difference. Um, But I, the political side of it, I found very difficult, which is kind of ironic because now I work in a nonprofit and advocacy space. So I <laughs> interact with politics every single day. Um, but at the time I was like, there has to be some way that people who are, who are good at learning languages and love learning languages can do this work. And I read an article. It was in The Independent and it was about, um, Mark Turin, who is a professor of linguistics. Um, actually, I believe he's a professor of anthropology, but he was doing linguistic anthropology. So he was in Nepal um, learning an endangered language and working with the people to help revive it. Um, And I was like, that's it. This man is learning languages and making friends. And that's the job I want. So I sent him an email. And so over the course of my senior year, I got to experience, I was very lucky. I interacted with him and with the professors at Carnegie Mellon University, which is very close to Pittsburgh, where I grew up. Um, and that's how I knew I wanted to study linguistics when I went to Yale. Um, and part of the reason why I chose Gale is because they offer a lot of different languages. They offer, I think, 52 different languages taught. And then they also offer something called uh, directed independent language study. So you can study other things that aren't taught as a course, not for credit, but you could just do it for fun, which, of course, I was doing. Um, so I went into university knowing quite well that I wanted to do endangered language revitalization. And so I took um, courses that fit within the parameters of a regular linguistics degree, um, like a standard linguistics degree. But I tried to focus as much as possible on what skills do I need so that when I graduate, I can be an endangered language advocate 
that I can work with communities to help revive languages. Mm -hmm. Um, And so by the end, my specialization was computational linguistics um, and natural language processing, which is the method of using computers to process and work with human language. So everything from the autocorrect on your phone to the smart devices like um, the Amazon Alexa or the Google Home you might have in your house, um, all of those run using natural language processing. And I learned about it because my ultimate dream is that we'll be able to apply natural language processing to languages that have gotten left behind or excluded. Um, so hopefully at 7,000 languages, once we build up some more capacity, that's something we'll also be able to offer. Um, because natural language processing could be used to build everything from autocorrect to dictionaries, to text to speech, um, to possibly someday, you know, fully simulating a conversation with an elder. And some of this is like very far reaching, cusp of modern research but i was fascinated by it because i was like this is a tool that could be really useful Mm -hmm. so 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 let's take it back for a second to sure because gosh you i mean this there's so much in there it's i find really fascinating and um mark turin i'd never heard of him but um for our listeners i'm going to put a little bit of information in the show notes as well about Mark Turin and his work that that Alexa mentioned. And then already there, there's the indigenous languages and the the endangered languages. Now, first of all, let's clear up the difference for in a very in a very tight nutshell. (laughs) What's the difference or what is the overlap between an indigenous and a endangered language in in your mind? So an endangered language um, is a language that for whatever reason, is no longer um, being transmitted from older generations to younger generations. Um, basically, the the turning point for language is, in when, is when parents or grandparents are no longer teaching the language to children. Um, there's a variety of reasons why this happens, but it's usually due to some kind of pressure. Um, It can be really vague social and economic pressures, or it can be very direct pressures where people have been forced by governments or by the majority culture to stop speaking their language. Mm -hmm. Um, An indigenous language is a language that is spoken or belongs to an indigenous people. Um, And indigenous people are the people who are the original inhabitants of a land. So in in the United States, we have um, Native Americans. In Canada, there are First Nations, Inuit, uh, Métis people. In um, Australia, there's Australian Aboriginal people, as well as um, Torres Strait Islanders. Um, in places like the UK, you might consider um, Celtic groups like the Welsh, Irish, Scots speakers mm-hmm. to be indigenous. Yes. Um, and a lot of indigenous groups have languages that are also endangered because those indigenous people have been subject to 
political forces, or in a lot of cases, been forced very deliberately to stop speaking their languages. Um, in the U.S. and Canada, there's a there's a particularly difficult history and painful history of Native American and First Nations people being forced into boarding schools where they were forced to speak English and often beaten if they spoke their native language. Um, mm, I've heard stories like that from Wales where I've been. You know, yes. people telling me about that happening to their great to their grandparents or great grandparents. It's a, it's a classic. It seems horrible, but it seems to be a classic. As far as I can tell, I haven't done deep research into this, but as far as I can tell, it's happened in at least seven countries. Mad. Um, on a on a large, like on a national scale. Um, in a lot of places, it's happened on a, on a regional scale. Um, but in at least seven countries, there's been a deliberate policy of doing this. Um, mm -hmm. And the, I think the craziest part of it is some of it is very recent. Um, I've worked with communities where they say, yeah, my mom was a residential school survivor. You know, I'm speaking to a woman in her 50s and, and her mother was in a residential school. Um And it's it's very painful for these communities. Um, it isn't the whole reason, always, why languages have become endangered in indigenous communities. And not all indigenous communities have endangered languages. Some indigenous communities are doing well. Um, but it, it's certainly a, a big piece of the puzzle. Um, so that is why we tend to see quite a bit of overlap between indigenous communities and endangered languages because from about the 1800s, sometimes earlier, up until the present day, um, there, was, there was a very deliberate suppression of these languages and it's taken decades of work just to get things overturned. Um, in Hawaii, for example, in the United States, it was actually illegal to teach school in the Hawaiian language until um, the 1970s. And the only reason why that law was overturned was because of an enormous effort by Hawaiian language activists to say, we should be able to teach our kids in our language. <laughs> um, and there's now a really wonderful school in Hawaii um, the Punanaleo, and then it, um, which is the preschool, and then it grows into a, a full, um, Hawaiian language school in Hilo, mm -hmm. um, where kids are actually able now to start school in Hawaiian in kindergarten, and now they can go all the way up through their PhD in the Hawaiian language, which is an incredible feat. Um, but just to think that you know, in this century, it was illegal in Hawaii to teach in the Hawaiian language, I think goes pretty far to explain why some of these languages are under threat, mm -hmm. and why some of them are now in such a difficult state. And have you always, from the sounds of it, the, the minute you kind of became 
aware of working with endangered languages and working in language preservation something drew you to it is it do you have like a little activist inside of you or a big activist or do you you know what what attracts you to endangered languages in particular and this this field of language preservation well for me it's a little bit about Well, there are a couple of different factors, I think. One is just about the the aesthetic of it all. Um, you know, if you were really, really passionate about art, and then you heard that like 30 to 40% of the world's art museums were on fire, you would be like, what is happening? <laughs> And why is this not front page news? So for me, that was kind of the shock of it. And I always want these languages to survive for their aesthetic and their cultural and their knowledge value. But on another level, I want them to survive for the sake of the people who they belong to. And that's why so much of the work I do is community driven. You know, it's not my place as as an outsider, as somebody who grew up in Western Pennsylvania, not part of an indigenous community. It's really not my place to come into a community and say, you should do this, that, or this to revive your language, or even that they should revive their language at all if, if they really don't want to. But what I have found in the years that I've been working on this and interested in this is that so many of these communities know exactly what they need. Um, communities come to us and they say, I need this and I need this. Here's the goal we're trying to get to. Like, can you help us? And so what, what I would really like to do is use the advantages I've had from going to Yale, from getting a very technical education, from being able to learn things like natural language processing and computer science. I'd like to use those to help these people. Um, I find it very frustrating sometimes that what in any other project or, or any other field would be considered pretty basic resources can be very, very difficult for these communities to come by. And there's all kinds of, of reasons for that, some of them more sinister than others. Um, <laughs> but often it's, it's just, you know, the same things that cause the language to be endangered make it very difficult for these communities to revive their languages. So as someone who loves languages and cares about language, culture, and people, I think it's, in, on a certain way, it's my calling to do whatever I can to help. Yeah. I I think the the way you put the way you put that about <laughs> just to to even want to preserve a language for for the sake of loving language and and loving the beauty of every single individual language and every individual communication system that's that's so lovely and that's such a wonderful way of putting it I think everybody who who appreciates language and communication between between humans can can relate to that that's before we even like you said it's before we even talk about those individual communities now i think it's it would be a good time probably to 
talk a little bit more about 7,000 languages. So first of all, what does what does your nonprofit do and who do you who do you do it with? So 7,000 languages is a nonprofit that creates free language learning software in partnership with indigenous communities around the world so that they can teach, learn, and revive their endangered languages. Um, one of the most commonly requested elements of language revival tools um, from language communities is some kind of language app. And when I say language app, that's something that you could run on your phone or on your computer. It acts somewhere between a phrase book and a fully fledged language learning course. Um, and it's really just the community looking to get the voices of elders and the knowledge of elders out to young people who are very passionate about learning the language, but can't necessarily access, you know, a 90 year old elder who lives 200 miles away. Um, one of the challenges with developing language apps is if they're built in partnership with a tech company for profit, they cost somewhere around $200,000 to $250,000 to build. Um, if they're built custom by the community, they're possibly less expensive, but they're not stable. So I've heard stories from communities of them building an entire app for iOS 9 and then the iOS 10 update making their entire app non-functional. So basically wiping out <laughs> years of work. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not a terribly uncommon story. Even stuff that's built by very skilled computer programmers, you know, anything that's a volunteer project or that's done with minimal funds, it's going to be very challenging for the programmers and for the communities to maintain those things long term, especially across several different devices and with the modern day frequency of tech updates. Um, so what we do is we partner with a, a language learning company called Transparent Language, and they've donated their software to us. So we use it and provide it to communities for free. Um, provided that we don't try to use it to teach very, very common languages. Um, so, um, obviously we wouldn't create like an elementary Spanish for English speakers course. Um, but what we do create are things like Northwestern Ojibwa for English speakers or Nahuatl for Spanish speakers. Um, and we make those courses in partnership with communities who approach us, say, we want to make an online language course. And then we work with them to try and figure out the structure and activities and content that make the most sense. They create the content, we process it, and the result is a very stable but free um, language app that they can then use in their community. Mm. That's That's really fascinating. I think that's such a... It, it goes to the heart of something that is a problem that a lot of people I think aren't necessarily aware of in terms of in terms of we think of these languages we think of of these communities as if they're somehow cut off from what modern life as if people don't have smartphones or people as if people couldn't use smartphones to learn an ancient language you know because the language is old or the language hasn't been 
spoken or the language is rarely spoken doesn't mean it can't be a part of your life. And to to bring to bring technology into it brings it in this way in, into the 21st century. I think I think sends a message along with it to say these languages belong here into the world that we live in now, not just into the past. Yeah, and I think creating the courses goes a long way to showing just how modern these communities are and just how committed people are to learning the language. Um, we have a course in Gwich'in, which is a language of central Alaska and the Yukon um, in the U.S. and Canada. And we released that in June. So it would have been a couple of months ago. Um, and I was just speaking to the main consultant on that, the main um, person, the elder who did the Gwich'in recordings. And he said, you know, some guy stopped me on the street the other day and said hello to me in Gwich'in. And I was like, do I know you? And the guy was like, no, but I learned Gwich'in from your course. <laughs> um, and this elder was so proud. Um, the guy's name is Kenneth Frank. He's been teaching his language for decades. And to be stopped on the street like that by some guy greeting him in Gwich'in to the point where he was like, who is this Gwich'in speaker that I don't know? Um, I think was so validated, validating for him and his work. And it was validating for us as well, because whenever we put out these courses, we're not trying to collect the language as a specimen. I mean, what we want is for it to be used. Um, and those same courses are now being used in some of the school districts around Fairbanks, Alaska, mm -hmm. to teach the language to kids, which is, you know, the holy grail of the whole <laughs> of the whole mission. So I think instances like that show just how powerful these language apps can be for making everyone from kids to elders feel connected again mm -hmm. um, to the language that they have been trying to learn for a very long time. What does the process of a, a language revival look like? You know, sort of what, what, is, what is our dream scenario here? I think in a lot of ways, um, looking at the community in Hawaii um, shows what can be accomplished with a monumental amount of effort and a significant amount of funding. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I think for many communities, that is the dream to be able to start kids from a very young age to become first language speakers of the language. Um, and often that means kids who are bilingual. I think there be, there's this fallacy a little bit that people get caught up in where they're like, well, if we teach them Gwich'in, then they won't know English. And I'm like, no, they'll still know English. <laughs> and this isn't something that's so confusing for the communities, but on the outside, sometimes people are, people are like, well, how will they get by in the world? But kids are, are very adaptable and they will know English. Yeah. But to be able to start them at a preschool level and raise them all the way up to be adult fluent speakers is the ultimate goal because that restores what we call the chain of transmission. 
um, those adult speakers can then have kids and teach those kids to speak the language as their first language. Um, where that gets really challenging and where we do a lot of the work is when the break in the chain of transmission is so long um, that it's very challenging to create fluent speakers, whether they're first language or second language. Um, for one example, um, we work with another group in Fairbanks called um, the Benti Kanaga Koktana. Um, yeah. And Benti Kanaga is spoken by, to my knowledge, two people. Um, That's intense. One of them is Sarah Silas, and the other one is her daughter. <laughs> um, and Sarah Silas is in her 90s. So it's not realistic for her to be in a preschool day after day teaching kids Benti Kanaga as their first language. Um, no matter how much she wants to, because Sarah has been teaching Benti Kanaga at least since the 1970s. She told me so when I met her. She was like, I used to teach this in school in the 70s. I'm like, I wasn't even alive. <laughs> so she's been working on this for decades. And what we did was we worked with her to create a course. Um, and Doyon Foundation, who are an Alaska Native corporation who are there on the ground, did so much of the work on this. And I really want to give them credit. Um, but so we and Doyon worked with her to um, create a Benti Kanaga course. And now that course is going to be used in the school district this year. So the hope is that if we can at least get kids to a level where they're conversational, they can have a conversation with Sarah or with her daughter Vera. And from there, that's where you start to build very proficient second language speakers. Yeah. And yeah. those very proficient second language speakers may be able to teach the language to their kids as a first language. It's that thing when you, once you start having conversations, then you start going, you start needing words. You know, and mm -hmm. reaching for words and saying, well, what's the word for this? And what's the word for that? And oh, God, I, don't, I can't say this. I can't say that. And language is so abstract until we start using it, until we start wanting to communicate. Um, before then, it's, it's, still fairly, it's still fairly abstract. And I think that's, that's partly, that's, that's part of the story, isn't it? This sort of living your, living your life. It's not even about living your life. Like these people can never you know, a member of an indigenous community, correct me if I'm wrong, in in the USA can't expect to to achieve at this point what, what they've achieved in Wales, which is getting speeding tickets that are bilingual. Yeah, it's very it's very unlikely. Um there are some communities who are on the brink of achieving things like that. I mean, Hawaii is, is an excellent example. Mm -hmm. um, so tell me what the state is in Hawaii, because I don't, I really don't know. So Hawaii is the, is the state of Hawaii. Um, it is an island about, I want to say 2,000 miles from the United States. 
Mm-hmm. But it's, it's it a was... state of, of the United States, right? Correct. Yes. Yes. Okay. And it was it was annexed to the United States after the Hawaiian government of Native Hawaiians was overthrown by a rogue group of American businessmen. Wonderful. Um, and at that point, they very quickly created things like the laws that are that were on the books that prohibited teaching Hawaiian in schools. And the reason for that is that Hawaii, prior to the takeover by the United States was a very literate society. Um, they had tons of newspapers. They had a, a very deliberate system of teaching all of the people to read, which was from the top down. The, the kings and, and queens of Hawaii were very insistent that all of their people would learn to read and write the Hawaiian language. Um, and so the only way for the people who led the coup to really truly gain power was was to prevent people from using and speaking the language because if if everyone is is literate and everyone speaks Hawaiian and all of a sudden you say, "Well, you can't speak Hawaiian, you can't teach Hawaiian, you can't print these newspapers anymore. I mean, that makes it very hard for the resistance to operate. Um, and there's there's so much of this that I'm not getting into, and I'm certainly not the most qualified person to speak about this. But um, I think what's so extraordinary is that even after nearly a 100 years of these kinds of laws preventing the tr- transmission of the Hawaiian language um, in, you know, the 1970s onward, a, a group of Native Hawaiian people and language activists banded together and made Hawaii change the rules. <laughs> um which made it possible for something like the Punanaleo to exist. You know, they laid the foundation for people to take pride in Hawaiian culture, to want to sustain the Hawaiian language. And, and that's when everyone started coming together and creating language nests mm-hmm. um, and teaching it to their children. Um Oh, we had and, a we had a wonderful presentation about languageness in um in in women in language conference this year. Yeah, I think languageness so. are just extraordinary mm-hmm. and very they're very powerful tools for language revival and I think I have to give so much credit to the teachers as well as the people who enroll their kids because I'm sure it feels like a huge risk on so many levels um, to go from a place where the language is barely spoken anymore and to enroll your child in a school where that's going to be their first language is such a it's such an act of love for your culture and your community. I think yeah, it's a sacrifice because those you, parents should really be commended. Yeah, 
you imagine this sort of um I, I don't know, I'm 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 drawing on my my background having grown up speaking a dialect of German and Germans you know many Germans grow up speaking um, a strong strong dialect and we all learn this Hochdeutsch and I remember I remember there being you know a, a, a switch and stuff like that and then being in secondary school where Hochdeutsch was it's the language of instruction and you learn uh, inadvertently like without noticing you sort of learn a sense of shame and you learn that like I don't think it's it's necessarily intentional but you, what you what you learn is this sense that that's the peasant language that's the uneducated language that's not what you know the dialect is not how smart people speak and stuff so it's a real I think it's a sacrifice and a and a leap of faith to put your kid into a school where you think oh well I'm I might be closing a door here for them yes I mean there's we had a wonderful presentation when we were in Alaska visiting Doyon Foundation um, by Jessica Black, who's a doctoral candidate, I believe. She's working toward her PhD about intergenerational trauma and how it contributes to that sense of shame and the challenges of reviving language. Um, because sometimes the very people you need to teach the language, the last speakers, are people who are survivors of residential schools. And so they learned as children that it was dangerous and shameful and potentially would lead to huge punishments to, to speak their language. And so then to ask those people decades later, will you speak your language for us as thoroughly as possible? It's such a bigger ask than I think the average person would realize. God, man. Um, and so she she did wonderful work and she linked us to a bunch of papers that talked about how that is part of the challenge of language revival. Um, and, I, you know, I know people who are such brilliant advocates in their communities for their language and they still feel like they aren't doing enough, which I think is so tragic, but is something that as a as a chronic overachiever, at least I can relate to. <laughs> but I think it's it's terrible that people feel that because they didn't learn their language as a child, or they're not fluent in their language yet, that anything they do isn't quite enough. Um, so, I mean, so much of the work when we talk about reviving languages is working among communities to try to come up with ideas for, you know, how can we do this in an indigenous way? How can we do this in a way that's friendly to endangered language communities? How can we make this not traumatic and painful? Um, and it, it even comes down toward like when we're sending out messaging, trying to educate the wider public, we're also kind of careful about how we present it because we don't want to reflect that shame or that trauma back onto communities. Mm. Um, I was at a conference where a young boy spoke very powerfully about how his school in Canada sent home a 
information packet about residential schools in an effort to educate non-Indigenous people and non-Indigenous kids. But for him and his family, it was very traumatic because he had family members who had been in those schools and learning about what happened to them was very painful. So structuring the revival and the education and the advocacy in a way that is productive, but then also not harmful, um, I think is is a challenging aspect of the work. And that's something where we we are always looking to you know, communities to take the lead to, you know, indigenous led scholars to take the lead there. Because I, as an outsider and someone who doesn't have that kind of trauma in my family, who has been lucky to not have experienced that, you know, I can't say what's going to be a good thing to do or not. So that's where we tend, we tend to lean, lean on the experience of, um, communities who know and who have found effective ways of working with it. Mm. Well, you mentioned earlier that uh, you, you, you made a remark saying you can't, you can't come in and, and tell a community what to do, um, even if they don't want to learn the languages. Do you come across communities where they say, we, we don't want to do this, we don't want to revive, this is, this is done, we want to leave this in the past? Not typically. Um... The most likely case is what I would call a sleeping language. So in some communities, the language is entirely dormant. Um, and it's what formal linguistic typology might call extinct, meaning there are no longer any living speakers of the language. Um, and a lot of communities object to that idea of extinct, because unlike extinct species, an extinct language can be revived as long as the materials are there to learn from. Um, it can be essentially reconstructed and revived. Um, and so in some communities where the language is sleeping, um, they've chosen not to revive the language at this point, not because they don't think it's important, but because there are other issues in the community that they find more urgent. And obviously that's going to vary from community to community, but um, I would say a dormant language or a sleeping language would be the most likely scenario. But there are also scenarios, um, this tends to happen most often, I think, with a living language that is often misclassified as a dialect. So. The technical definition of a dialect is something that's mutually intelligible with another language. So um, if I'm a speaker of Zorg and you're a speaker of Zop and we can understand each other, then Zorg and Zop would be considered the same language and just dialects of that language. Um But a lot of times for political reasons or um, reasons of nationalism or pride, um, things that are almost certainly not dialects get classified as dialects. And so that's where kind of the shame factor might come in. So in some communities where 
their language has been for decades classified by the majority as a backwards dialect that you shouldn't speak. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times people are really eager to switch to the dominant language or the dominant variety in that area because they know that if they continue to speak their local language, they're going to face obstacles, economic obstacles, obstacles to moving around, to communicating with people. So in those cases, there's there's just as likely to be a push for people to become fluent in the majority language as there is to be a push for people to really double down on their local language. Um, and those are the cases that don't reach 7,000 languages very often because we work mainly with communities who have reached out to us and said, we want a language app. So it's unlikely for us to come across people who are saying, you know, we just really don't think our language is that important or, you know, our language is traditional and that's the past and we need to move into the modern age, Mm -hmm. which are definitely attitudes that exist out there. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it... That's humanity, I guess. It it takes it takes all sorts. So, Alexa, I, oh gosh, we we're nearing the end of uh, the end of the time normal running time for a podcast, and it's it's a conversation I could have with you for a million hours. It's so interesting, and you speak with such confidence and interest about it. So, um, a few quick fires, I think, and then we, we we'd really like to. I'd like to already listeners encourage you to go to seven thousand dot org. Have a look at the blog. Have a look at the donation page, you know, because that's a, it's a donor-supported organization, which Alexa will tell you about a little bit more as well. But have a look at the blog as well, because I, I think it's it's well-written and super interesting. And, oh, my God, the pictures of the old people with the microphones and, the, you know, like they're doing, the, they're doing such important work and they look like they're having fun with it as well. So... I can't, oh, it's so touching and you, you had me nearly crying halfway through this interview as well so this is such a moving cause so to finish us off a quick one um, Alexa how many languages do you does 7000 languages work with at the moment and which ones are they let me actually pull this up and I will make sure I give you the full list I used to be able to do this right off the top of my <laughs> head but once we passed 15 it got really hard that's All good right, news so we've got Balinese Balinese for Indonesian speakers, Bedini Kurdish, Benti Kanaga, Cree, Dakota, Danaka, which is also called Koyukon, Denis Sufline, also called Dene, um, Gwichin, the Isaac Junubi Memorial Course in Han, um, Halkachuk, Kachikel, Kituba, Kosati, um, Nawat, Nawat for Spanish speakers, Oji Cree, Ojibwa, Central Ojibwa, Northwestern Ojibwa, Sisseton, Dakota. Um, and that's it so far, but we have several courses that should be coming in hopefully next month or so. Mm. Now, the listeners of this podcast tend to be the kind of people who get very excited about about new languages. Kind of the feeling that maybe you and I have as well, hearing, thinking, oh, Gwich'in, I've never heard. I want to, you know, I want to dig in and learn a little bit more about it what would be your advice because i know people can be 
it it can be delicate to to learn an indigenous language especially an endangered one that's struggling for the survival and you can't just like like you say you can't just come stomping in and go all right listen i'm the smart white person i got the resources you know open up for me do you have any advice any is there anything to sort of mind to mind to be aware of as if we are if we want to come to an indigenous language an endangered language with curiosity and positivity so i would encourage people to use the courses everything is linked from 7000.org mm-hmm. um and so all of the courses they're online courses you can learn them asynchronously it doesn't put any demand on the community other than show that people out there are interested in their language and value their language um, and if you get to the point where you've made it through all the materials online and then you're looking for a bit more to do, get in touch with me directly because I would be happy to kind of mediate between you and the community, talk to them about, hey, I have this person who's really committed to learning. Is there something that they can do with you or, or ways that you guys can work together? Because, you know, volunteers are desperately needed always on these courses. Um, people who are passionate about the language are always appreciated. If you do make it all the way through the course, consider donating because the donations are what drive our ability to make these courses. We don't charge anything to the communities, so that means we have to raise all of our operating funds from people like you who are passionate about languages. Um, but I would say in this case... You know, you you don't have to worry that you're going to exhaust the resources of a community in some way. Um, these communities have really put together a labor of love in order to get their language out there. And obviously their first priority is teaching it to their own children and grandchildren. But to hear that someone halfway around the world or thousands of miles away is interested enough to learn their language also brings a lot of motivation i think absolutely oh that's that's very encouraging very very positive and what alexa's saying listeners you you know is so so true and we can we can really put this call out to to everybody if you use the language learning materials and you know that you know perhaps they were made by somebody who is one of the last speakers of one of these languages and you're using them consider throwing a bit of money into it as well to kind of keep the operation going because we know the world is the world is built on money so the link as well if you just want to support the cause of 7000 languages which is such a good cause and it is the year of indigenous languages as you know so we've made a we've made a previous episode about it that is kind of a sister episode to this and this today we dug in with Alexa with the an an activist a an active person an organizer on the ground If you want to support the course of 7000 Languages, the link is 7000.org slash donate. Of course, I'm going to put it in the show notes for you as well. So you can just click through, go right there. And it's so it's so lovely, Alexa, to to have spoken to you about this. And obviously, like I said, listeners, the, we haven't even gotten through all the questions that I have. It's such a fascinating topic. I will I would love to hear more from you in the future. I wish you all the best for 7000 languages already. I'm I'm just so excited for you. Really looking forward to this episode going out and I think a lot of people will really connect with it. Now, to finish off the show, what I do 
is I say goodbye in English and then I ask my guests to say goodbye and you can say goodbye in any language of your choosing. You can say bye in English or you can say it in French, say it in Old Norse, whatever you want to do. <laughs> I'm not sure I know how to say goodbye in Old Norse. I mainly <laughs> read some Viking stories. <laughs> <laughs> no, they just they just had their head cho head chopped off. They didn't have a chance to say goodbye. That was it. So, <laughs> so without any more to say, so just seven thousand dot org slash donate, listeners. That's the place to go. Or just seven thousand dot org. You know, feed your curiosity. Is so so much interesting stuff to to see there, and such a wonderful world to look into. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye and goodbye from Alexa Dill. Sayonara. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.